Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, and then we will pray for our study as well as for everyone that's being affected by the aftermaths of this hurricane. Daniel 2, verse 31. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you, and Lord, we ask that you would bring comfort and you would bring peace throughout these cities that have been affected in Texas. As the churches gather uh, today, God, that you would pour out your spirit. Lord, for all of those that have lost loved ones and been displaced, or would you move in a powerful way? Would, would you use the, the chaos to allow things to be turned for good? And Lord, as we study your word this morning, we just ask for ears that would be open, minds that would be alert, hearts that would be prepared, that you would send your word into our lives to impact us and change us and transform us. We do thank you, Jesus, that you reign over all things. You're the king of kings. You're the rock of all ages. So would you bless our time together in Jesus' name, amen. We see Daniel living between two worlds. Here he is a young man and he's been kidnapped. He's been taken captive from Jerusalem to Judah, brought to Babylon, this world empire, put into the king's university with the intent that they'll indoctrinate him, with the purpose that they will turn his heart and mind away from the one true living God to worship all of these false gods, to grab his identity. They even changed his name. But Daniel had purposed in his heart to honor God, along with his three friends. You would think that Babylon would impact them. If you would think about some of our teenagers and then put into that situation, you'd go, there's no doubt that Babylon is going to impact them. But the exact opposite happened. These four young men radically impact the kingdom of Babylon. We find ourselves living between two worlds. We know that we're citizens of heaven. We know that we're children of God. But yet we also know that we live in this world. We're not of this world, but we live in this world. And how do we balance the tension of being in between two worlds? And that's what we learned from Daniel's life. Where we're at in chapter 2, what we've already seen in this chapter, is God had given Nebuchadnezzar a reoccurring dream. This dream disturbed him. He couldn't sleep. So he asked the wise men to do two things. First, to tell him his dream and also give the meaning, give the interpretation. If they don't, off with their heads. His literal command was cut them in pieces, make their house an ash heap, a rubbish heap. This affected Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well as they're part of this group of wise men They seek the Lord, that God would give mercy. God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. Now in our text, the second half, we're going to see Daniel go in to Nebuchadnezzar, give the dream and the interpretation. The theme of this section of scripture is that Christ reigns over all. The dream shows the kingdoms of the world and Jesus reigns over all. His kingdom is the one that lasts for all of eternity. Verse 31, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. He's describing what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. This this great image that he looked at and he saw, and, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. It was the splendor, and the excellence of it was awesome. 
And as we'll see, this statue, this image that he saw represents the kingdoms of men. So he begins to describe this image. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. We've made an image for you. It's not near as awesome, but we want to put it up here on the screen so that you can get a a visual of what this may have looked like. I thought this kind of looked like Pastor Dan Hooker, don't you think? (laughs) It's just kind of poetic justice that he's on vacation this morning. He's not, not here to hear me tease him, but so here you have this, this statue, and we see the different parts laid out in, in verse 32. The head's gold, the chest and the arms are silver, the belly and thighs are bronze, the legs are iron, the feet are part iron and part clay with, with the toes. And the interpretation will give us the meaning of these things. In verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, That's important, remember that. The stone is not man-made. It's not cut out with man's hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The stone is Christ, the Messiah. So you have this stone that comes and crushes this this image, breaks it. Verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. This image representing the dominating world empires, the stone comes and crushes the image to where it's like chaff and they're blown away. They're they're not, not remembered anymore. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So as this image is destroyed, then the stone becomes a great mountain that fills up the whole entire earth, speaking of the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ. So verse 36 brings us into the meaning or the interpretation. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings. Starts off by speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm going to give you the interpretation And he reminds Nebuchadnezzar of the unique position that he's received. He's the king of kings. He's the most powerful man on the planet. At this point, the Babylonian Empire is the strongest empire in the world. And Nebuchadnezzar is the strongest king. He's the the king of the other kings. And verse 37 continues, For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know you're not a self-made man. That God is the one who has given you the kingdom. He's given you the power. He's given you the strength. Goes on to say, And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all, you are this head of gold. So as we look at this statue, as we look at this image, the head is Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold is the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has a hard time learning this lesson that God was the one who gave him the power and gave him the strength and made him the head of gold, if you would. 
In Romans 13, verse 1, it says, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Nebuchadnezzar was a very prideful man. Keep chapter 3 in mind, because chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's response to this dream that God had revealed to him. It reveals his heart. As soon as he gets this message from God, he goes and builds a statue of gold of himself and demands that everybody worships him. He's basically saying, look, I'm not just the head of gold, I'm everything gold, and doesn't realize that God was the one who raised him up. Later on in the book of Daniel, we'll see him walking in pride, claiming that he had built all of these amazing things. Babylon was was an amazing city. And God humbled him and made him like a beast of the the field. The testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's life is God has the ability to humble the proud. What if Nebuchadnezzar would have learned the easy way from God speaking to him through this dream and the interpretation given by Daniel? God is the one who has given you the power and the position. What can we apply to our lives from this? If there is any good thing in your life, It doesn't come from your hard work. It doesn't come from your creativity. It doesn't come from your personality. Ultimately, God is the one who's blessed you. God's allowed you to make those mortgage payments, to pay your rent. God is the one who's given you that position. God has given you the health to be able to get up and to to go to work. If people naturally gravitate towards you, that's the Lord. God has given you favor. And for us to understand that and not take credit for ourselves. Let's look at this a little bit deeper with God being the authority over all authority. Does this mean that God approves of everything that Nebuchadnezzar does? No. We have this tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So God is the authority over all authority, Yet Nebuchadnezzar is sinful in making sinful choices, but what we find is the evil that Nebuchadnezzar commits is not the last word. That God is able to take the evil and turn it for good, for his purposes. God is using Nebuchadnezzar to correct his people. Do you know how difficult that is for Judah to be taken captive, to have Jerusalem destroyed, to have the temple destroyed? burned down, and this is who God uses, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king who doesn't recognize God's authority in in his life. And for us to understand that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have the final word, but God has the final word. So Nebuchadnezzar commits evil, but the Lord uses it. Remember Habakkuk, we studied it maybe a year, year and a half ago. That prophet as well struggled with why would God use a pagan nation to correct the people of God. At that time, it was northern Israel, the northern 10 tribes, and he had to wrestle with that, and God's answer was, the just shall live by faith. Back to this dream and this statue, if you look at the materials that are used, what's most valuable? Gold has the most value. And then silver has less than bronze than iron. Iron's the strongest, but it's not the most valuable. And King Nebuchadnezzar, as we look back at history, out of these other world empires, he had the most power. He was a complete dictator. He was a complete monarch. He didn't share the power with anybody else. Not necessarily good, but it did result in the the most power. 
than these other world-dominating empires that will come after him. So let's continue, verse 39. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So three future kingdoms that will rule the earth after Nebuchadnezzar. First thing to note about this is there shall arise another kingdom after you. There's always going to be someone who comes behind you in every aspect of life. My pastor growing up used to say, if you think you're really important, stick your hand in a bucket of water and discover what happens when you take your hand out. What happens? The empty space is filled up, right? What happens when you leave your job, maybe after a lot of years? They're hiring somebody else and somebody's gonna take your desk and do your job and probably take your cell phone too, right? You know, that's just, that's just the way that, that life works. So Nebuchadnezzar needs to know there's going to be a kingdom after you. There, there's going to be a leader that comes, comes after you. So what are these world-dominating empires that come after this? If, if Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold and that represents a world empire, then we assume that the other parts of these statues are particular world-dominating empires. The, the silver chest and arms is the Medes and the Persians. So when you look and you, you see the silver chest and the arms, the Medes and the Persians came after the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC. We're actually going to see that in our study of the, the book of Daniel. Not quite as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar in the sense that they had a constitutional monarchy. Even in studying the book of Daniel, we're going to see that their king, their leader, was accountable to their laws in a way that Nebuchadnezzar never was. God sees this, and he knows this, and, and he predicts this. And then you have the belly, and the thighs are bronze, which is Greece. Alexander the Great, the, the Greeks come in and conquer from 334 BC to 330 BC, and they had an oligarchy, more of a few key leaders that are sharing the power, less, less powerful than, than Nebuchadnezzar. And then the last is the iron legs, the, the Roman Empire in 63 BC that come on the scene and defeat Greece. God sees all of these kingdoms before they even exist and prophesies them in Daniel's prophecy. Babylonian Empire, 66 years. The Persian Empire, 208 years. The Greek Empire, 185 years. The Roman Empire, 500 years. How does this touch a little bit on current events? Babylon is what area of the world? Iraq, modern day Iraq in between the Tigris and the Euphrates. What was the region of the Medes and the Persians? Iran. For most of Iran's history, they were called Persia. In more recent history, they changed their name to Iran. These regions of the world are still grasping for, for power. You may not retain all of the history of what was just described in the interpretation of the dream, but we can hold on to the heart lesson that God knows the future and that God reigns over all things. It's easy for God to look and predict and say, these are the things that are gonna take place. These are going to be the world-dominating empires. The fourth kingdom is described, the, the iron legs, the Roman Empire in verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall break 
The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, insomuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. The strength of the Roman Empire crushed and shattered its enemies. Strong military. And that's described in these iron legs. There's one more kingdom that is yet future that we haven't seen come on the scene yet. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. You've got the feet with the toes. First, got 10 toes, right? So this kingdom will have 10 nations or 10 key leaders. It's part iron and it's part clay. It's mixed together. We don't see anything in the Roman history of a federation of 10 leaders or countries coming together. Because of this, we believe that this passage is yet future. That there is going to be a conglomeration of 10 nations, 10 leaders that come together that rule the world. And as we'll continue in our text this morning, it's going to be in the days of this kingdom that the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, comes in his second kingdom to rule and reign and crush the kingdoms of, of this world. Christ in his first coming came as a suffering servant, but as a second coming, he comes as a conquering king. The second coming of Christ is yet unfulfilled. When you look at the Bible, literally, you go, it's clear that Christ hasn't returned to set up his reign. We haven't yet seen this. And most believe that this federation and this cohort comes out of the Roman Empire. It's it's somehow the restored Roman Empire. So because of this, there's been a lot of speculation. The European common market coming into the European Union, nations coming together, And some say, well, this was the fulfillment of of the prophecy. But then from that, the number has changed. You know, when it hit 10, everybody got excited. And then when it went over 10, they're like, man, we don't have 12 toes. So I don't know if that's going to work out. Ultimately, we don't know. But I think we do see the world headed this way. Can you imagine that one person or one country in a modern context, could dominate the world like some of these ancient empires. Highly unlikely. But it is headed towards a one-world system. It is headed towards ten leaders coming together and those ten leaders being able to dominate the world. Ten countries coming together and those kings, if you would, being able to dominate the world. And so these iron coming in with the clay with the clay toes and the iron toes, we see this kingdom described in verses 42 and 43. And, of, as, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. There, there's parts of the kingdom that are st- extremely strong, the iron, but there's also parts that are extremely fragile. In verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as the iron doesn't mix with the clay. So the problem's unity. And this future federation 
of kingdoms and kings, they have a difficulty with unity. And we can imagine that, right? We, we can picture that. That seems to be the struggle of the day, is, is unity and being able to, to come together. Now, here's the key in verse 44. And again, God is giving Daniel the interpretation of this dream. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever in the days of these kings. That's why we also interpret from Scripture that this is still an unfulfilled prophecy because we haven't experienced the second coming of Christ. God doesn't give us the day and the hour that Christ is going to return. So when someone tells you, here's the day that Christ is going to come back, you know they're a false teacher. Because Jesus said only the Father knows the day or the hour. But God does give us the season, the signs leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in the days of these kings, what's going to happen? The stone's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to set up his reign. Let's look at how his reign's described. The kings of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another. Christ is never going to hand off his kingdom to someone else. It's eternal, and it's forever with him. And it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and shall stand forever. Never again will there be a time where man is, is ruling. Christ is going to, to rule and to reign. Remember, in the dream, these kingdoms are crushed like chaff and they are, are blown away. There's this teaching that the church sets society in order, then ushering in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if we can impact the world system to a certain degree, then that will bring in the kingdom of God. So kind of, if we can set District 20 in order, or District 49 in order, or the Senate, or, or Congress, or the United Nations, once believers are get into all of those places and impact all of those places and get it in order, that's going to then set the stage for Christ to come and take control of all of those entities. I don't think that that's biblical because Jesus doesn't come to convert the world system. He's going to come and crush it. It's going to be no more. And it's going to be clearly his rule and his reign. So does that mean we don't get involved with District 20, District 49, local government, state government, international affairs? We do, absolutely, from the perspective of being salt and light and pointing people to the gospel to know Jesus as their Savior, to look to the second coming of Christ, but not from this perspective of somehow we're going to save the world system. The world system's going to perish, amen? That's a very clear message from this dream and from this interpretation. Everything in verse 44 is pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the, the scriptures about the second coming of Jesus Christ get a little bit fuzzy in my head. Like, I know that they're there, but where are they in the Bible? It seems to be something that we don't focus on quite as much. So I want to take a moment to look at two places in scripture that talk about the second coming of Christ. So turn with me to Zechariah in your Bible. Zechariah 14, verse 4. So if you're in Daniel, it's a little bit 
to your right. Zechariah 4, verse 4. Zephaniah, Zechariah. If you get to Malachi or Matthew, you've gone just a little bit too far. Zechariah 14, verse 4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Go on in the text that talks about living water then going through this valley. Jesus literally is going to return and stand on Mount Olives. Mount Olives is just off of the Temple Mount. A short walk from the Mount of Olives, you've got a great view of the temple. Where did Jesus ascend to go back with the Father after his resurrection? From the Mount of Olives. The very spot that he left this world, he's going to come back. This has got to be the most valuable real estate in the world. You know, right there. We know this is, this is where he's going to return. This is a literal return of Christ. This is the, the second coming of Christ. Sometimes I think in all of the differing views of rapture and tribulation, we lose sight of what the end's actually going to be. We all agree on the end. No matter what you believe of your position of the rapture and all of the differing views on the tribulation, we all agree on the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you believe the Bible, you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the message of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar gets is the stone is coming. Jesus is coming and he's going to rule and reign. So hold a place in Daniel. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, the very last book in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 11. We're going to read verse 11 through verse 16. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Isn't that awesome? Christ is literally going to rule and reign the nations with a rod of iron. What is that going to look like for Christ to rule and to reign over all things? And then in Revelation 20, verse 4, turn over one page, Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, 
and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast of his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We see a thousand year reign of Christ. After that thousand year reign is the great white throne judgment. And then chapter 21, we see the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. Christ is coming, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Daniel verse 45. Turn with me back to Daniel 2 verse 45. Insomuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. It has partially been fulfilled with the four kingdoms. The fifth kingdom yet future. The stone that's not been made with hands to crush all of the kingdoms. And Daniel knows that this is the word of the Lord. He says, this is sure. We can trust this. Christ is depicted as the stone. In Psalms 118 verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus quotes this. In Matthew 21, speaking of himself, saying, I am the cornerstone that was rejected. And then he says this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You're going to have to deal with Jesus, whether you want to or not. That's a reality that's given to us by God because Jesus is God. And Jesus as the stone, there'll be some of us that will choose to fall on Christ, fall on this stone, and be broken. It's called salvation. It's beautifully being broken, realizing that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, turning from our sin, and falling upon his grace and mercy, crying out to Jesus saying, I'm a sinner, would you save me? And then he begins to restore our lives from that point. But there'll be some who will harden their hearts against Christ that will deny his existence, that will believe that he exists, but not choose to surrender their life to them, and they'll be grinded to powder. We really have a choice of receiving God's grace and mercy, accepting that he paid the penalty for us, or rejecting that, and then being at a place where we become an object of his judgment. In just a moment when the service ends, we're gonna give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your savior, to fall upon that stone, to trust Christ. And then also for us as believers, we don't want to ever stop falling upon Christ. Amen? Amen. We want to walk in humility and go, Christ, I need you. Today, this morning in my life, I need you. I want to be broken upon you and upon your goodness and not harden my heart towards you. In verse 46, we see that Daniel's promoted along with his friends. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Then the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, a revealer of secrets since who revealed this secret. This is an acknowledgement. He bows down before, before Daniel, which is a big deal. Nebuchadnezzar is not used to bowing down before anybody, let alone a, a Jewish slave. 
However, he very quickly goes into building this statue of himself. So it's the acknowledgement of the truth without the surrender to it. And that's a dangerous place to be. Whenever we acknowledge the truth of Scripture, when God's getting our attention, he's revealing something, but then we don't submit to it. We don't act, act upon it. In verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Israel is in a period where they're being corrected by God, but God doesn't stop working. Here, God takes one of their very own, this young man, Daniel, and promotes him to be the CEO of Babylon. (laughs) He's the chief administrator of Babylon. This is amazing, God's ability and God's power to raise Daniel up to such a prominent position. You wouldn't think that this position would be given to anybody but their own people. But they see God's hand upon Daniel and they raise him up to be the chief administrator. Daniel makes a great move in verse 49. Also, Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. This would have been an easy time for Daniel to forget his friends. He knows the value and the importance of being in community with God's people. And he makes a petition to the king and says, you know what, these three guys were a part of this. These three guys prayed with me. They're gonna serve well. So they get positions of prominence as well. But Daniel, he's sitting in the gate. This was the position of authority. We know this from history and archaeology, also from the scriptures, that the leaders sat in the gate of the city. So what do we learn from the text? What do we apply from the text this morning? If you're taking notes, the first is this. Christ rules over the kingdoms of men. Christ rules over the kingdoms of men. Are you dealing with uh, a Nebuchadnezzar in your life, an authority in your life, and maybe you see them even committing some evil? Do you know that God has the power and the ability to turn it for good? Maybe it's a boss. And you're so thankful for Labor Day. Maybe you don't have to work on Labor Day. But Tuesday's going to feel like Monday. It really is. And you know Nebby is going to be there waiting for you. As understand, God's the ultimate authority. Maybe it's a very difficult HOA boss in your neighborhood that makes it, makes it difficult, and they like to march around your neighborhood like Nebuchadnezzar. All right, God, God's the ultimate authority. God's working in the midst of this, and he's going to turn and use things to good. Maybe it's a teacher or a professor. Understand that God rules over the kingdoms of men. The second is, look forward to the second coming of Christ. Look forward to the second coming of Christ. As we read the scriptures, this is the greatest story. And every great story has a beginning and an ending and a great plot in between. What an incredible beginning in Genesis 1.1. But you know what? The beginning is not near as good as the ending. We know how it ends. We know what all of this is leading up to. We live in some interesting times, don't we? There's a lot of chaos that's happening in the world. All of this chaos is going to lead to what? It's going to lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And we know that as believers. We hold on to it as believers. And through faith, we go, I can't wait for Christ to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and make everything right. And at that point, there's going to be no kingdoms of men. There's going to be no stock market. There's going to be no Democratic Party, Republican Party, Tea Party, Libertarian, or any other party. It's going to be the Jesus Party. Right? And again, it doesn't mean that we don't engage. Engage in where we're at now, but understand that this is leading to something eternal and are we pointing people to Christ? And then the last thing I think is very important is serve God in a pagan culture. Serve God in a pagan culture. Here Daniel gets this revelation that God's in control, but where is he left? He's left with that God had placed him in Nebuchadnezzar's court, in the gate of the city. And these four men serve faithfully in a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture that looks a lot like Babylon. And it's easy for us to kind of want to just take our ball and go home. Say, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm just going to live out my Christian life inside of the four walls of the church and then the side of the four walls of my home. And I know for many of you, God has put you right in the midst of a pagan mess and serve God faithfully there because God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to have a faithful witness, didn't he? And that was this young man, Daniel. So maybe you're in a very secular company that has values that are completely opposite the scripture. Do you know that that's exactly where God wants you to be? What if everybody worked at a Christian ministry or are on staff at a church, we wouldn't have an effective ministry. We wouldn't have a faithful witness to every part of society. And so God will place some in a Christian ministry and God will place some to work at a church. But do you know where God wants most of us? Right in the midst of the pagan mess. That's exactly where. Never think that because you don't work at a church that you're not in the ministry. You are in the ministry. That's the ministry. Can anybody say of Daniel, he's not serving the Lord? He's serving the Lord, and he has a pulpit, but it doesn't look like this. It's right in Nebuchadnezzar's court. You've got a pulpit. You've got a mic. You're right in the midst of of the pagan culture. Don't be afraid. Daniel wasn't afraid. And say, okay, Lord, I'm going to serve you right here where the Lord has me because God loves Nebuchadnezzar. God loves a pagan culture. God wants to get a pagan culture's attention. And more and more, we're going to be faced with these decisions. Go, okay, what do we do? We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be people of integrity and people of prayer and point people to Jesus. Stay strong. Serve faithfully. God's put you exactly where he wants you to be. So there's a great application. God's going to take Daniel's and he's going to put them in Nebuchadnezzar's court so that people can hear about the love of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's, let's pray this in. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Daniel and his life. And God, we do pray that you would bring applications to our hearts and minds right now. And we acknowledge that you reign over the kingdoms of men. We see kingdoms on the world stage right now, but we know ultimately that you're in charge. And you are working things together for good. 
We see this in our lives personally. There's authority in our lives, and, and Lord, you're moving that together for, for your good. Jesus, we know that you're going to return based on your word, based upon your promise. So God, we hold on to that and we look forward to that. And then Lord, we understand that there's a real purpose to our lives. And we see that our culture is becoming more and more turned against you. But yet this gives an opportunity for your light to shine. I pray for those that find themselves working and serving and and living in an environment that's similar to Daniel. Would you give them strength? Would you give them wisdom? Would you give them your favor so they can point people to you?